If you would now take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles in the Purak, it's on page 575. Here in just a moment, I will read for us uh, the first 10 verses of Isaiah chapter 11. As I mentioned earlier, this is part of our Christmas series, He Shall Be Called, is the title of the series. And we're looking at Isaiah chapter 7, which was last Sunday night, tonight chapter 11, and then on Sunday mornings and Christmas Eve, Pastor Jason has taken us through chapter 9. So we've heard of the wonderful counselor last Sunday night. Kevin McKelvey uh, preached on Emmanuel. This morning was mighty God. Christmas Eve will be everlasting Father. Next Sunday morning, Prince of Peace. Tonight we come to the one that was kind of hard to, to title. Um, if you look there in the translation, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So it was between a shoot and a branch. Both go together. Um, we're calling tonight from the stump of Jesse. These are all descriptors of the Messiah. The promised deliverer of God's people. Isaiah is developing a, a fuller picture of the Messiah in his ministry here. He will be more than just an earthly deliverer. What we begin to see in Isaiah that the promised Messiah, the deliverer, will be not just someone who will rescue God's people from earthly foes, but the Messiah will be the mediator between God and man. And this is what's being developed in Isaiah's prophecy in which we see in fullness um, after the coming of our Lord and His life, death, and resurrection. He comes to be mediator. That is his office. And within that office, there's almost, if you would, three offices that Christ fulfills. You may know these. Let me remind you. It's the offices that we see in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king. So a good summary of his office of prophet from the Westminster Shorter Catechism and question 24 says that as our prophet, he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Jesus as our mediator is our prophet. But then as our priest in question 25, the summary is in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. He makes continual intercession for us. Jesus, as Messiah, fulfills the office of priest. And here in this passage, it's the office of king that Isaiah is painting for us. So in question 26 of the Shorter Catechism, it says that as king, he subdues us to himself. We first become his subjects in ruling, and he defends us, restraining and conquering all his and then our enemies. So here in Isaiah 11, we have the stump prophecy. And what do we see here? And what are we about to read and consider this evening? Well, in this stump prophecy, we see that the Messiah will be the ideal king. And in his person and in his reign, 
He will display regal perfection. And that's what we're going to consider this evening. Before I read God's word for us, let us go before him in prayer again and ask for his help. So please join me in prayer again. Heavenly Father, this is your word about your son. And so we ask for your spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might have eyes of faith to behold the Savior, to believe upon him, to forsake sin and to pursue him in repentance, that we would take up our cross and follow our great king. We need your help to do that. And so we ask that your word, working through its reading and its preaching, would produce fruit in our lives, that we would be more than hearers, that we would be doers, that we would act in faith following the one who is revealed in this passage, placing all of our hope in him. So I set the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart as I open up your word this evening will be pleasing to you. And we ask that it would be for our growth in grace and for your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word from Isaiah chapter 11. We'll read the first 10 verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on each of our hearts. We each have our Christmas traditions. In the last couple years, the Phipps family, we started a new Christmas tradition. It's, a, it's an odd Christmas tradition. Uh, we were building on a former or an earlier Christmas tradition in our family. Early in our marriage, Emily and I decided that uh, every Friday, two things happen. We put up a Christmas tree 
and it must be a real one. And so every Friday after Thanksgiving, I should say, it's Christmas tree day. So that's a family tradition in our house. But since moving to Michigan, the best place to put a Christmas tree in our house is right next to a return air vent. And what that meant was all the pollen and sap and allergens that you just brought into your house then get circulated throughout the house. And if you have people who are allergy sufferers in your home, that's not a great idea. But if you must have a real tree in the home, uh, what are you going to do? Well, there is no hyperallergenic Christmas tree to put up in your home. So we started a new tradition. And we go cut down our tree, prop it up in the driveway, and hope that it's not too cold because I'm washing the Christmas tree in the front yard, which I'm sure all of our neighbors just have to think is the most bizarre thing in the world. So bizarre that they dare not even speak of it because no one has ever mentioned it. I know they see it, and we've just come from cutting down a tree, so I'm already kind of like, I've crawled on the ground to saw it. I'm dirty, I'm, I'm nasty, sweaty, and then I'm standing out in the front yard with a hose. They're probably thinking, what kind of, and, but it works. It works. Um, it really helps with allergies in our family to wash down the Christmas tree. That's a Christmas tradition for us. Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 11 may be suggesting a, uh, maybe a more biblical Christmas tradition, you might say. Um, maybe instead of the Christmas tree, we put a stump. That would be quite the message. That would be um, something that would get people's attention. You immediately would have, can turn it to a gospel conversation and say, where is the Christmas tree? No, we just put this stump up because of what Isaiah Chapter 11 prophesied about the coming Messiah, that he would come from the stump of Jesse. The symbol for Christmas here in Isaiah 11 is a stump, but it's a stump with a live shoot that is coming from it. That shoot is to be the King of Kings, the promised Messiah. So as we consider the first 10 verses here of Isaiah chapter 11, I want us to consider in three headings, three sections. In verses 1 and then in verse 10, I want us to see the regal reset. The regal reset. Regal being pertaining to monarchy and kingliness. Um, then in verse 2, I want us to see the regal equipping in verse 2. The regal equipping. And then finally, in the remaining verses, in verses 3 through 9, the regal reign. So first, the reset. We want to consider verses 1 through 10. What are we told about this stump here in Isaiah 11? We're told that this stump has an identity. What is the identity of the stump? It's the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. So King David, kids of David and Goliath, that king, his dad's name was Jesse. Do you remember that? And it says that a new shoot will come from and that shoot will become a branch. The shoot has its origin in Jesse. But also Jesse himself has his origin in this shoot. Now that sounds kind of confusing, but look back at verse one from the stump of Jesse, then scroll over to verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse. 
Oh, you see, the metaphor changed from being the shoot from the stump to now the root. Jesse has his origin in the Messiah. Here, this is helpful. Isaiah is giving us two ways to understand the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is the cosmic king, and then he was sent to be the corporate king. Corporate meaning representing a group of people. By cosmic king, we see here he existed before Jesse. He is the king before David was ever king. He is the root. He is the pre-existent king, the eternal king, the king who is outside of creation and over all of creation. His cosmic kingship is referenced in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the one who is outside the cosmos and that everything within it is for him and for his glory. He is in his eternal person filled with majesty, glory, honor, and power. He is king, essentially king. It's who he is. He is the cosmic king, but what we see unfolding in the history of redemption is that the cosmic king entered space-time and history to be a king for a people, the corporate king. And that's also spoken of in Colossians 1.18. And they're speaking of the church in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. No, he comes to lead a people. David was from him, and yet he comes as a descendant of David. And to be the corporate king, he must become like his subjects. So he took to himself a true body, a reasonable soul, and conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb. He was born of her and yet without sin. So here, Isaiah lays out this tension between the one who is the root but will come from the stump as a shoot to be the branch. He's given us a picture of Christ's great humiliation and leaving the throne of heaven to come and be born out of the stump of Jesse. He enters the world through Jesse. Isaiah wants to remind us that David, with all the promises of Messiahship coming to his throne, to his descendant, David was of peasant origin. Judah was the least of the tribes. Bethlehem, the least of the towns. But why stump? Why the picture of a stump? Well, to understand the picture of the stump, you have to go back to the previous chapter. So hopefully you still have your Bible open. Look at the end of chapter 10 of Isaiah, verses 33 and, 40 and 34. Behold, the Lord, God of hosts, will lop the bows with terrifying power. 
The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Here, Isaiah is saying this is what's going to happen to the kingdoms of the world. That all the kingdoms that threatened God's people, God will come in and he will cut them down. He'll lop them off. But then what do we see happens? It won't just be the wicked kingdoms, but God's own people will be cut down to a stump as well. The whole landscape of the earth, every kingdom's cut down. But of one kingdom, there will be a sprout that will come up from. It reminds us, as, as Kevin preached last week from Isaiah chapter 7, about Ahaz's failure. That when pressured by two kingdoms coming against him, King Ahaz of, of Judah looked to Assyria for help instead of asking the Lord for the sign. And by the time Jesus arrives, for all intents and purposes, the Davidic line is nothing more than a stump. The one, King Herod, is no true descendant of David. It's been completely cut off. It's been cut off from the exile and it's never been restored. It remains a stump. And that's who the cosmic king then comes and enters to be a king for those people. It's kind of like taking one of the greatest coaches of all time and then giving him the worst team ever. Imagine if John Wooden, who was arguably the, the greatest college basketball coach ever, he coached the UCLA Bruins from 1948 to 1975. In a 12-year period, he won 10 national championships. At one point, he won seven straight national championships in a row. Think at the height of his winning at UCLA, if you went to John Wooden and said, hey, with all the success, you seem like the perfect candidate to come coach our second grade boys team. But they're not even the best team in the second grade league. They're actually the worst team in the second grade league. And John Wooden said, yes, I'll do it. And he turns them into champions. This is the reset that God would do through his Messiah. The Davidic line is nothing more but a stump, but he will send his own son, his own son fulfilling the promise to David and yet starting over at the same time. It's all of grace that God would send a king like this to such an undeserving people. And this king comes and he lives born as a child. All of his life is one long experience of humiliation because he is truly the cosmic king. And now today he reigns as a king who has experiential knowledge of this fallen world, having humbly walked the planet that he created. While he was here, he never lived in a palace, never surrounded by servants waiting on his whim. But up until the time of his public ministry, he worked a blue-collar job. He had calluses on his hands. He was the only man who was ever truly worthy of a throne. But he didn't spend one day on one. 
when he first came. He was the only man who was ever truly worthy of a crown, but the only crown he ever wore was a crown of thorns. In Matthew chapter 2, the wise men from the east arrive in Bethlehem asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And we see him here in Isaiah 11. Here he is. He's the reset. He's the root who becomes the shoot from the stump so that he might be the savior king of an undeserving people. It's the regal reset. But then we come to the regal equipping. That's not a, all that Isaiah tells us about the king born in Bethlehem. In verse 2, we see how that the God-man is equipped for his task to be the Messiah king for his people. He doesn't cease to be the cosmic king, but in his role as the corporate king, he is reliant on the spirit of the Lord to fulfill his office. Here we see that though it was only the son who becomes incarnate, who takes on flesh, the work of redemption is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see this early in the Old Testament, that if anyone is going to fulfill a divine task or divine mission, they can't do it unaided apart from the help of the Spirit. And we're told that in verse 2, on this shoot, this branch from Jesse, the Spirit of the Lord rests. In Exodus chapter 31, we see Bezalel and Ohiliab, who are craftsmen who are filled with the Spirit of God to lead the construction of the tabernacle. They had a divine task and they needed divine aid. And so they were given so. We see that Aaron, in the establishment of the priesthood, he is anointed with oil as a symbol that the Spirit of God would come upon him for the task. And that's the three offices that Christ fulfills were the three offices in the Old Testament that all received anointing, representing the need of the Spirit in order to do what that office required. So that if priest, prophet, and king, kings were anointed with oil because they needed the Spirit. And we see that Samuel anoints Saul and David. And in the life of Saul, tragically, we see at times the Spirit comes upon Saul and he leads God's people into victory. And other times he grieves the Spirit and the Spirit leaves him. And you see another Spirit come and possess Saul. And he goes and quickly becomes a wicked king. David was a man of the Spirit, anointed for the task to be king. In his life we see the Spirit evidenced in his contribution to the Psalms. And yet, tragically in his life, we see a man who inconsistently walked according to the Spirit of the Lord. He had the Spirit in great measure, but the Spirit did not rest upon him in the same way that it would rest upon the one spoken of in verse 2 here. We see in Solomon, David's son, the Spirit's work is evident in his extraordinary wisdom. And yet in him we see a king that wasn't completely surrendered to the Spirit and is led away by his many wives into false worship. And then from Solomon and into the division of the kingdom, we see a series of wicked 
and righteous kings, but even the most righteous kings in the Davidic line end up in need of judgment. Each of the righteous ones fails to walk in harmony with the Spirit of God. But this shoot that grows into a branch bears the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit is resting upon him. In the first chapter of John, you remember when Jesus is entering his public ministry and he's baptized, what happens? The Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And what does John chapter 1 verse 32 tell us? It remains on Jesus. It remains. It sounds like what we have here in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So when we look at the Gospels, what do we see? We see a man who's fulfilling his divine mission as the Spirit of God is equipping him, resting upon him. He's the God-man, equipped by the Spirit to be king. The mission before him requires wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, and the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And throughout Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit resting upon him is his never-leaving companion for him. Jesus operates as the Messiah by the power of the Spirit. And as the promised king, unlike all the kings that came before him, Jesus never grieves the Holy Spirit. Not once. You know, in Psalm 51, we have the account of King David's repentance as he committed adultery and then, which led to murder, he has to be confronted by the prophet Nathan and upon that confrontation, he does repent. Do you remember what he prays in Psalm 51? One of the things he prays is, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now what does David mean by that? David understood that if he was to be the king that God called him to be, he needed the Spirit of God to be with him. And he understood that the nature of his sin was so grievous that he jeopardized the anointing that he needed for the task of being king. But as the Spirit rested on Jesus, Jesus never had to pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Jesus never gave him a reason to leave. Jesus was tempted to sin, but listen, he never experienced the conviction of sin. Because in his mind, there was never a sinful thought. There was never an inclination that was in any way contrary to the Holy Spirit. And so after living a perfect life, walking according to the Spirit, the conquering king then gives that same Spirit to his people. He may say, well, wait. Are we in that Psalm 51 scenario where we should be concerned that God would take his Spirit from us? And Ephesians does speak of that we may grieve the Holy Spirit but if you belong to Christ, you've been made alive, born again by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And ultimately, if you are His, the Spirit will never be taken from you. Not because of what you have done, 
but because the Spirit comes as a gift from the King. He lived the perfect life. The Spirit rested upon him. He never did anything to offend the Holy Spirit. And then upon his resurrection and ascension, he gives it to his people. The Holy Spirit, the same one that enabled him for the task of Messiah dwells in the believer. That's good news. 1 Peter 4, 14 says it just like this. And drawing on the language from Isaiah, Peter writes, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's the only place in the New Testament when it uses that language of the Spirit of God resting upon you. Here, Peter's addressing believers who are suffering for the name of Christ. He's saying that God has asked you, God has called you to this task, but he has not left you alone. Just as he equipped his son with the Spirit and the Spirit rested upon him for what he has called you to do, to live faithfully to him and for him. The Spirit rests upon you. The wise men come from the east. They come to Bethlehem asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You say, here he is. Here he is in Isaiah chapter 11. The one whom the Spirit rests upon and the one who gives his Spirit to his people. And that brings us to our last section, the regal reign here in verses 3 through nine. There's a lot of ways we could have outlined uh, this section of Isaiah chapter 11. I put it under one big heading, but with two sections. Here we see the one who is equipped by the Spirit, and then we immediately see in verses 3 and 5 the character of his reign. What kind of king is he? What is it like to be under his reign? And then developing that even further in verses 6 through 9, we see the realm of his reign. So look back there at verses 3 through 5 with me and just glance with me. What does it say there? Well, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What's the character of this king? He will be one who will never backslide. He will never be like the wicked kings of, of Israel who forsaken God's law. And then later in that same verse, he shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. No, equipped with the Spirit of God and being the Messiah King, he always sees the matter truthfully. He's not like the leaders in our world today, and it's not like you and I, that often we can be deceived by appearances. No, when judgment is, is placed before him and he must discern and judge, he knows the truth of the matter and he cannot be deceived by appearances. Then in verse 4, what does it say? But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He really will provide the justice that many long for. He will care for the oppressed. He will care for those in need. Unlike those who often in our day get elected on such a platform, of being for the common man, for the everyday man, for being for those in need and those down and out. And actually, once they actually get into the political milieu, they get influenced by power, money, and wealth, and they forget the, the poor and the oppressed that they promised to represent. But not this king. 
No, he can't be influenced. He can't be bought. He will serve those who need to be served and serve their cause. And then in the second half of verse 4, what do we see about this king and his character? He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Oh, this, this king is also a prophet king. And that his word is powerful and effective. Judging the wicked is, is the scepter of his reign, is his word. And then in verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. Does that remind you? It should remind you of the armor of God that Paul is drawing from. This is one of the passages he has in mind when he tells us to put on the armor of God. Speaking about the belt and the waist and the belt of his loins. These are the garments that you have put on in readying yourself, whether it would have been for battle or for a day's work or for whatever it would be. This is when you are leaving and going out. And here this king, when he readies himself, what is he? He's filled with righteousness and faithfulness. This is who he is. This is his character. This is what it's, it's like to be under his reign. And then we see a description of the realm there in verses 6 through 9. It's quite the picture. We see the created order minus conflict. We see the created order without violence and disruption. We see a picture of peace on earth in verses 6 through 9. It's telling us to look back to that brief time before sin entered the world and let your imagination run. What would that be like? Well, it's where predator and prey would live in harmony. It's where children would be next to the, a den of snakes and there would be no fear. This was the world and the garden entrusted to Adam and Adam and his kingly task has failed. And Isaiah is saying, the one who will come from Jesse, he will reset where Adam failed. He will fulfill the kingly role where Adam fell. It's not just pointing us back to that garden, it's pointing us to a garden to come. But in between, for Adam's failure to be reset, to be put to right, the king must go to the cross. And so what do we have a picture here in verses 6 through 9? I think we have an illustration of Colossians 1.19 and 20 where it says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's a world on the other side of the return of Christ and the consummation where there is peace that reigns. Both here in his character, in the realm here that's described, we see what people long for in a king. What is it that people really long for in a king? Well, it's the security that a king can offer. Having one to represent you, one to lead you, one to defend you, one to conquer your enemies one to provide for you. There's great security. 
And because of our King, we can have security before the judgment seat of God. And because of the resurrection of our King, we have security that this new realm, it's coming. It's coming. Here is the future as we await His second advent. Now in the New Testament, one of the places that the root and the stump is referenced again, the root and the descendant, it's at the close of the Bible. The glorious picture that we are given in Revelation 21 and 22. Have you ever noticed what Jesus says in closing to John there? In Revelation 22, 16, Jesus says, I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The wise men, they come from the east. They arrive in Bethlehem. They ask, where is this king? Here he is. He is the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Amen? Let's ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. King Jesus, what a beautiful picture we have here through the words of Isaiah the prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved for us in your word. May we not be deceived by the false hope offered in our world. May we fix our eyes on you, the one true king. And may we, by the equipping of your Holy Spirit, may we live in your kingdom now as we await its full realization. May we live in the victory of your cross as you have conquered sin, death, and the grave. That as the guilt of sin has been taken care of, may we walk with power over our sin, not in ourselves, but by the resurrection power of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We ask that this coming week, that as we look towards celebrating your first coming, our eyes would be fixed on the second, and we'd point our hearts and the hearts of others to the only hope. It's you, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.